Since 1927, Time Magazine has been giving a Person of the Year award to the most influential newsmaker around the world. But in 2006, there was a bit of a shocker with this award. The person who won the award actually beat out Iran's president, China's president, to be awarded by Time Magazine as the most influential person in the world. And that person was me. It was. It was me. And it was you. And it was us. Because the most influential person awarded by Time Magazine in 2006 was you. That was the Person of the Year Award. On the cover of the magazine, there was just a computer, and you were the Person of the Year. Now, the reason for this was 2006 was when user content on the internet really began to take off. And by posting your thoughts, your life, your talents, what you were eating for dinner, posting yourself and your opinions about sports, theology, politics online through platforms like, at that time, MySpace. There was YouTube at that time. Personal blogs began to take off, and social media was just becoming the rage. But this was the year marked when you could, you and I, we could actually influence the world. You were the person of the year. Now, in 2006, none of us probably sat around and thought, well, this is going to be a big problem. The influence that you, we could have from our homes, and now through the development of the smartphone, from, from walking around with these digital mirrors in our hand, we never probably thought that, that that influence of you could devastate society, could actually cause a lot of harm. But I want you to think about how the influence of you the influence of everyone having a voice, everyone having the same opportunity of influence, how that has affected the world that you now live in. Now, sure, there is all kinds of connectivity. There's all kinds of ministry. There's all kinds of good things that can happen through social media and those uh, type of platforms. But I want you to ask yourself, as we talked about last week, is the world that you live in and that you experience on a daily basis more peaceful? Do you experience peace because you have more influence? Have we experienced any sort of unity because we all have the same amount of influence? And whatever unity and peace we may experience, think also about 
the disunity we experience because you have influence, because we have the same amount of influence. Think about since 2006, the life-altering, culture-changing, world-affecting events that we have all gone through and we've experienced through social media and the World Wide Web together, and has it brought us closer? Oh, I would dare say we are way more divided. We are divided people in our own country and even around the world than we ever have been because we, you, have influence. Constant arguments about elections, opinions, who the starting point guard on my up, kids' upward basketball team is going to be this week. We have influence to voice those opinions. We have the opportunity to complain about our server at the Cracker Barrel. And it's not media bias that causes you to get on Facebook and rage over the customer service at United Airlines. No, that's a you problem. That is something that you cause. And here's the reason. Anytime we have the opportunity to exalt ourselves, we will. Anytime we are given a platform to pontificate our views and opinions from the, from the context of our own prideful heart, we will use that. And what happens, James tells us in chapter 4, is that opportunity creates problems. You are a problem. Your power becomes a problem that turns to rage and division even in the context of the church. This is the question James asks as we move into verse 1. Why do you fight at church? And the answer is you. Why are there conflicts? The answer is you. Notice verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Now, what's interesting about the word quarrels and fights is they are words used to describe a state of war. The, the words used here describe combat, military action here. These are, this is armed conflict. And he asked the question, why is there armed conflict? Why is there combat in the church? Remember last week, he told us to make peace and sow peace in the church by being peacemakers, loving one another, forgiving one another, being merciful to one another. And then he stops here and goes, but wait a minute, why are there fights in the church? Why are you raging against one another in the church? This is the opposite of peacemaking. And then he gives the answer here. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The problem of church division begins with you? And he describes here passions as intense lust, a longing for the things that you want. And he says these passions are at war within you. The word here for war is a military campaign within you, meaning your desires are at war to overtake you. What you want is at battle 
to overtake your life. And that causes you to make other people's life miserable. The problem with fights and quarrels is you and the desires that are warring within you. And then he goes on in verse 2 to say, you desire and you do not have. There are things that you want and you are clamoring for these things. But what do you do? You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Now, when we see this word murder, which means to kill unjustly, and we see this word covet, which means to seethe with great anger, to long to destroy someone to get what you want. When we see those words, we say, James, that's a little, that, that, that's, that's too intense. And yet he's proving a point here. He uses this imagery to describe the, the intense violence that your selfish desires can have. He wants you to know the capacity within you. You can want something so bad, you can actually destroy others. You can seethe against others and long that they would be devastated so you would get what you want. We all have that capacity within us. And James is also reminding us of what Jesus taught that even these acts of violence and the way that we hurt others and the way that we sin, it all begins in our heart. Remember he said, if you're angry, you have killed. It's the same because it's a heart issue. If you lust, it's the same as adultery. Remember Jesus taught us that. Why? He says your issue is in your heart and it's the sin in your heart and that's where sin begins. And James is trying to communicate here the conflict in your life, the, 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 the battles that you are fighting in the world. They all begin in your heart because you want what you want. So when I ask you the question today, what are you fighting about? In your home, where does, where does conflict happen in your home? Between you and your spouse, between you and your kids, you and your siblings, in your friendships, what, what do you fight most about? When you're at work, what do you argue most about? When you're online, what do you find yourself seething about? That's not to tell you something about the person with which you're arguing. Your arguments are to tell you something about you. And what is it that you want? Do you want God's glory or do you want your glory? James says you argue with other people because you want what you want. You want for yourself. And so what are you willing to go to war over? What are you willing to destroy others over? What is it that you are willing to slander and gossip and lie about that tells you something about yourself and that reveals within you the idols of your heart? I want to declare my opinion so bad, I will humiliate you and demean you. I want my way so bad, I will yell you down. I will pout. I will sulk to get what I want. 
And James says that's where conflicts come from. Is it politics, theology, sports? What are you willing to go to war over? Or is it the glory of God? Are you willing to fight for the glory of God? Notice James continues, what are you willing to fight for? Then he says, what are you not willing to pray for? He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. And so James moves from our desires to our prayer life. Because these things are to be connected. We are to align our desires with God's will through prayer. Prayer isn't for you to get what you want. It is for you to, in reverence, trust God's will. And so your prayer life will reveal what you really want, what you really desire. And what James says here is there are some of you in church who don't, do not pray at all because you don't desire what God wants. And so it would be empty and futile and foolish for you to pray. All of the words used here are, uh, uh, are taken from when Jesus taught us to pray, that we would ask by faith, we would seek the kingdom first, and we would receive God's desires for us. We trust him in prayer. And in the first chapter of James, James says, when you are suffering, I want you to pray. But what I want you to pray for is Christ-like wisdom. As you suffer, you are to stop and ask God, how can I be more like Christ as I suffer? How can I trust the Father as Christ did as I suffer? And James says that's the very reason some of you are not praying. Because you don't want what God wants. You don't want Christ-like wisdom. So you don't even pray. It, it, it would be futile. It would be empty for you to pray. And then he says, others of you, you are praying, but you are praying for things that have nothing to do with the will of God. They are all about you. And so ask yourself the question today, what are you not praying for? What, what is it right now, the desire in your heart that you know it would be ridiculous to ask God for. And I'm not talking about provision or, or things that you may be worried about or anxious about. I'm talking about things that you know would be outside of His will. And you're not praying. That reveals your heart. Do you pray for your ministry at church? Do you pray for your BFG? Do you pray for the mission trip that you are about to take. Why would you not pray for those things? Could it be that those things are really about you? And you're at the center of those things? And you are pursuing those things because you want to be exalted and you want a name for yourself? What are you not praying about? And then ask yourself the question, what, what are things that you're praying for that you are not getting an answer for because you know the desire of your heart has nothing to do with the will of God. Some of us start praying about conflicts and the conflict that we pray for, it's more about us just getting our way. And so we pray in our heart, would they just see things my way? 
God, I pray that this idiot would stop being so stupid and do the right thing. Stupid with a capital T. Some of you get that. Always end stupid with T. And I don't say it right. Tennessee. But you're, you're, you're praying for things. And, and, and it's not according to God's will. Your prayer in conflict should be, God, I pray that you would give peace and I pray that you would give reconciliation, even if it begins with the desires of my heart changing, that you would see, that I would see my pride and I would repent of my pride and confess my sin. James says you're not praying because you have no desire to pray that way. So what are you not praying about? And what are you praying for that really has nothing to do with God's will in the situation. And then another question, how are you trying to be God? All of these things reveal our desires of our heart and why we have conflict with others. Verse four, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here he gets more pointed with the desires of our heart. And he begins with this statement, you adulterous people. James, James is straightforward and he doesn't mince words. What he does here is he looks at the church and he sees conflict going on. And he says, it's because you are guilty of adultery against God. And this is the way God described his people in the Old Testament when they chased after idols. God would say, I am your husband. I am the one who has betrothed you to myself. I've committed myself to you. And you are chasing other lovers. You are chasing after other gods. You are guilty of adultery. And here James turns around and says the same thing to this church. You are all guilty of having the potential in your heart of being unfaithful to Christ. Those are the desires that are there. You are to be the bride of Christ, and yet you chase after foreign things. You chase after the sin in your heart. And he says, you are adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? It, it is it, it, friendship. This, this word here is used for brotherly love or common interest. You are showing affection to the world. You are an ally to the world. And when you do that, you are at war. You are at odds with God. You are planning, wishing, making, setting yourself against God when you make yourself a friend of the world. Now, the word world here refers to the belief system of the world. And to understand the rest of this text, you have to understand what he's getting at here. He's, he's, he's not just referring to the sin of the world. He's referring to the way the world thinks about itself. And the world's belief system is to chase after power. It is to chase after praise. And it is to chase after pleasure right now. I want power and I want pleasure and I want praise right now. And James says, if you live that way, you are at war with God. If you live that way, 
you are unfaithful to Christ. This goes on in your heart, this desire to chase after power, pleasure, praise. And he says, when you do that, you are making God, notice he says, your enemy. You are aligning yourself with the world. Which he goes on in verse 5, he says, or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. Now, this is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to understand what's going on here. And many, many look at this verse and we, we have to decide, is he talking, the spirit, is he talking about the Holy Spirit here? Or is he just talking about the spirit that lives within us? What, what is he talking about here? And who is it that is yearning jealousy, jealously over this spirit? Well, the word jealousy here is, is never used redemptively. It's not the same way in which God is jealous for his people. The, the jealous yearning here is always for uh, sin. It is always for wickedness. And, and so there is one here he is describing who is yearning jealously for the spirit within us and, and for the spirit within us to long for power, to long for pleasure, to long for prestige, the spirit of the world that we have a tendency to buy into. So who is he talking about here? As we'll see in the next few verses, he's talking about Satan. And what James is describing here is we all have the desire within us for power, pleasure, and praise. And Satan yearns to use it for his purposes. And when you buy into Satan's promises, when you buy into his lies, you align with the enemy. And so this is the description here. When, when you long for power, long for pleasure, long for praise, and you buy into Satan's lie here, you are at war with God. And this is the spirit of the world that Satan uses to cause conflict and division in the church. Every one of us here have the potential to be used by Satan because of the desires in our heart to assert power, to long for the credit and praise and to pursue our own pleasure and destroy everything around us. Now, I find it interesting that James uses worldliness to describe what's going on here in the church when we desire those things. Because if you're like me growing up and your grandparents described people as worldly, which my granddad would always say worldly, he wouldn't put the D in there. And you thought, okay, those sinners out there, those people that go to the movie house, those people that dress inappropriately, they're worldly. Those people out in Hollywood, they listen to that kind of music. The liberals, they're worldly. And what James is saying is, no, 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 no. The people in the church are the worldly folks when they fight one another. When they seek to destroy one another because they are living by the world's belief system. They are living by the world's values, the world's ethics. 
And ultimately, at the heart of this belief system is a desire to be God. Ever since sin has come into the world, ever since we first bought into Satan's lie for power, pleasure, and praise, the world has been warring back with God. And the world wants to usurp our authority over God and call the shots. And so how are you being worldly? How are you longing for power, pleasure, and praise? What does it look like in your life? Have you ever met the person who just, they just kind of rage out when they don't get what they want? And then they just go back to normal as if everybody should be okay with that? They just lose their mind. And when you've been around people like that, you kind of get quiet. You let them have their moment. And then all of a sudden, the day is to go on as normal. Or have you ever been around the person who's just kind of passive aggressive? They don't get their way and they sort of sulk and they pout until everybody stops around them. What's wrong with you? Nothing. What's wrong with you? And what's going on in both of those situations? I want my way and I'm going to control you either with my rage or sulking. Why do you do that? Because you want to be God in that moment. You want to control other people. And you don't have control. That's worldliness. That, that, is, that is a desire for power. The person who just hurts other people. And what they want is right. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And everybody's got to get over it. Why do we do that? Why do we hurt and betray and lie to other people? There are things that we do and, and, and behind their back. It's not because we love them. It's because we want to be God and we want to define truth according to my desires. And you just got to get over it. You just got to get over it. Why, why, why do we gossip? Why, why, do we, why do we talk about other people in context? Well, so-and-so just got this new position at work. Well, you know they got fired from their last job. You, you know, I know so-and-so thinks they do a good job at that, but they're not really that great at it. Why do you do that? Because you think you're God and you're the one that deserves praise and nobody else. So you push others down so that you would be exalted to the place of God. That's worldliness. When you control, when you humiliate, when you yell, when you sulk, when you put other people on blast, when you say things in a moment, I'll leave, I'll quit. You want to be God. And you want to control people. And you want to control the situation. And you want praise. And you want whatever pleasure you can get out of the moment. So that's all the bad news. Now let's get to some good news. Verse 6. We see crossroads here of pride. See how our pride is in our hearts, but there's good news, but he gives more grace. Now, this is why I believe verse 5 is about Satan, because there is a contrast here, a direct contrast from the one who is 
playing according to our desires, but then there is one who gives more grace. And the word here is greater grace. Grace that overwhelms our desires for sin. The word grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. Something you don't deserve. You have wicked desires in your heart that you act on. You don't deserve God's grace, but He gives more grace. He gives greater grace that overcomes those desires and even the consequences of those desires. For those desires and actions, you deserve hell, but God gives more grace. He gives, he gives something you don't deserve in light of your sin. Then he continues, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now he quotes from Proverbs here. And you got to hear this part. God opposes the proud. Now, the word oppose means to set yourself against, to go to war against. And in the book of Proverbs, we see that God says the arrogant, the arrogant, the prideful are an abomination to him. He doesn't mince words. They are disgustingly wicked. The prideful are detestable to him. God literally hates those who would exalt themselves and their desires against him. He hates it. James isn't mincing words. He is opposed to the proud. Pride is an assault on God's glory, an attempt to be God. And God hates it. What does it look like to be prideful? It means to put yourself in the place of God, where you say, God, I'm going to tell you who I am. Not according to how you've created me, not what, what you've called me to do according to your word. I'm going to tell you who I am and I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's prideful. And God hates it. It's at the heart of every sin. God hates pride. But then the good news, but he gives grace to the humble. Now the picture of grace here, it means to turn your face toward. It means to gaze upon with favor. It means to delight in. And so you see the contrast here? God hates, he rages against the prideful, but his face and favor are toward the humble. What a beautiful picture of what it means to be humble. And, and what a devastating description of pride. The one who says, I'm going to tell you who I am and I'm going to do what I want to do. God rages against that. But the one who says, no, God, you created me. You tell me who I am. And in your word, you tell me what to do. God's favor rests on that person. And so you have a choice. You're at a crossroads. Will I be prideful or will I be humble? humble? And we don't give many life tips around here. We just try to preach the word and allow the spirit to convict our hearts and apply it. But I'm going to give you a life tip today. Life is hard enough. Life is even harder when you invite God as your enemy. Now think about that. In general, we live in a fallen world and life is going to be hard. Sin, the sin of others, death, chaos, destruction. The world, it's going to be hard. So why would you live in this world with God as your enemy? Meaning, why would you live prideful? Why would you make yourself the center of everything? 
And I guarantee you this, in whatever context it is, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your family, whether it's uh, your job, whether it's a friendship, whether it's situations at church, whatever situation that you have approached and you said, I am the center and I'm going to be God, I'm going to exalt myself in this situation and I'm going to get what I want, it's going to be really hard and difficult. Why? Because God is opposing you in that situation. Some of the situations in your marriage are really hard because God is opposing what you want because you want it to be about you. Some of the situations in family, God is against that because you want it to be about you. Some of the situations at work, God is against that and you're not walking in God's favor. You're not walking in his blessing. And I'm not saying you just get what you want and it's happy, happy. It's just there's no contentment there. And you're always anxious and you're always angry. Why? You have made God your enemy in that situation. And he's opposing you. So how do you walk in the favor of God in that situation? Well, if the world's value is power, praise, pleasure, you do the opposite in that situation. And instead of trying to control other people and trying to control the situation, what do you do? You pray. Instead of asserting power, pray. God, I'm not in control. I can't change anyone. You're the one who is sovereign over every molecule. And so I got to pray. I got to pray. Your happiness in that situation is dependent on your prayer life in that situation. And instead of whining and complaining and grumbling, why don't you praise God? Instead of longing for praise for yourself, why don't you stop at work and praise God? Yeah, this job is hard and the people I'm around, it's hard. But I'm going to praise you because you have given me a job. You have given me the ability to study. You have given me the, this career. You, God, I'm going to praise you. Instead of longing for my praise, I'm going to stop and praise God. Because in that situation where you're longing for praise, God is opposed to that. But he turns his face to the one who would pray and praise him in that situation. I told you right when you needed to hear that came right above my head. And why not obey the word of God in that situation instead of longing for what you want? When your desires are out of control, when, when you're raging, why don't you stop and say, what is God calling me to do in this moment? How can I obey him if we were focused more on just being obeying God than doing what we wanted to do? We would be a lot happier in that situation. The humble are those who walk in happiness because the face of God is directed to them. And so we pray, praise and obey. And what does that look like? I'm going to move through this section quickly. Because he begins to describe what humility looks like. Different characteristics of humility. First of all, submit to God. How do, how, do you, how do you resist pride? Resist the opposition of God and draw his favor? Well, you submit yourself therefore to God. It means to get in rank. It means to willingly take your position under authority. What submission means is I'm not God. God, you tell me what to do. And notice what happens when you do this. You resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, resisting the devil so often is described in this superpower, Holy Ghost, 
This sort of self-centered way of I'm sort of a demon slayer. No, the way that Satan flees from your life is your humility. Where you stop and you trust God. Why? Satan cannot use someone who is harnessed by the Word of God. Your desires are harnessed by the Word of God. He can't use you for his purposes. But then we also confess. Notice verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Pride runs from God. Pride hides from God. Pride blames others. My sin's not that bad. I can fix it myself. Humility draws to God and he draws near to you. Now the word here is a decisive act where I turn from my sin and I turn to God. And notice what God does. He draws near to you. And it is the picture of God coming out to meet you. Remember the prodigal son as he is coming home and he's had his fill of sin? What does the father do? He runs out to meet him. It's the picture of God here. When you turn to him and you've had enough of your sin and you're ready to submit to him, he comes to you. And notice what he says here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, James mentions no words. Cleanse your hand, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, sinner here means to miss the mark. It literally means you're not God, but you think you are. And so you need to clean your hands because the things that you've done in your life are sinful. And so cleanse your hands. Cleanse what you have done. Repent of what you have done. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, the word double-minded, it means to have a dual focus. It actually means to be two-souled. It means you are a hypocrite. I, I love God, but I'm going to do what I want. And he says, no, you need to purify yourself of that. Now, what's interesting, interesting here is we draw near to God to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. Get that part, right? Because that doesn't seem right, right? I've sinned, but you want me to come to God because of my sin? I can't come to my God because He is holy and He is righteous. And the closer I get to God, the more I realize He is holy and righteous and I am sinful. But that's the irony of drawing near to God. You draw near to Him and you see your sin, but you have to draw near to Him because He's the only one who can do anything about your sin. He is the only one who can cleanse you of your past, what you've done with your hands and your life that is sinful and wicked. And He is the only one, the absolute only one who can purify your hearts, the desire in your heart to be God and do what you want to do. And so He says, draw near to Him confess your sin and be purified. And then he says, weep. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Now, what's interesting about these terms is wretched means to be miserable and devastated. What would God have you to do about your sin? Be miserable over it? That's what the word means. And then he says, weep. And mourn. The words used here are the most intense words for grief. How am, I, how am I supposed to deal with my sin? Be devastated by your sin and weep as if someone has died because of your sin? Have you ever done that? Have you ever been so struck by the holiness of God and your wickedness that it has brought you to tears? 
That's what James says. If you really understand what's going on, an infinite holy God, an infinite sin. And isn't it interesting we live in a culture that celebrates sin? To be honest with you, all cultures have done that. We laugh over sin. We indulge ourselves in sin. We make sin entertainment. And James says, no, you should weep over sin. You shouldn't give sin a platform. You shouldn't exalt sin. He says, your laughter and joy should be turned to tears. And even downcast, despair. You could even use the word depressed here. Now, why would you weep over your sin? Now, some of us are thinking, I've, I've been in situations where my sin has cost me everything. And it was easy for me to look around in my life and weep because it cost me everything. And it hurt other people in my life and it broke my heart. But that's not even the main reason we weep over sin. You should weep over sin because it is an offense to God. Your creator and your savior and the one who longs to be your father. And you shake your fist at him. And he says, be devastated because of your sin, which is a rage against God. And then he sums up this section by saying, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so we've gone from submission. We've gone to confession. We've gone to weeping. And then he sums it up and he says, humble yourself before the Lord and notice how it ends. He will exalt you. The command here is to bring yourself low, understanding you are not God, and you come before the Lord, His will and His desires. But I want you to notice how this ends. He will exalt you. You see, the issue is not, the issue of pride is not longing to be exalted. The issue of pride is exalting yourself and not allowing God to do it for you. There is a desire within us to long to rule and reign with Jesus forever. God created you to be kings and queens who will rule and reign with Jesus forever. Pride is trying to be a king or queen now apart from Jesus. But the one who would humble themselves and submit to the Lord and understand their sin against God who has promised them everything, that person who would humble themselves in this way will be exalted. And so you're here today and you're thinking, how do I humble myself? I don't want God against me. I want the favor of God in my life. How do I do that? Well, you can't do it apart from the cross. None of this makes sense apart from the cross. And so as we, as we come to a close here, I want you to think about this. As we move forward, what does humility look like in your life? What does, what, what does submission look like in your life? What does confession here, what does weeping over sin look like in your life? It only finds meaning if it is done before the cross. And so I want to invite you to humble yourself today by coming to the cross. And you submit yourself to the Lord at the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus is doing something you can never do. 
And in that moment, as you submit to him as Savior and Lord at the cross, Satan flees, as James says here. Why would he do that? Because he no longer has power over you. He no longer has guilt that he can throw in your face. And that desire for power and pleasure and a name, it is crucified as you see Christ who is humiliated and crucified for you. So submit to God at the cross. At the cross, draw near to God. Come to the cross today and have your hands cleansed. Come to the cross today and have your heart purified because only there can it be by the blood of Christ. Trusting in what he has done for you. Draw near to God today through the cross and come to the cross and weep over your sin. The cross should cause you to weep over your sin. We so often come to the cross and we feel sorry for Jesus. We feel sorry for what's going on there. Jesus is alive and well and doing fine at the right hand of God. Don't feel sorry for him. But what you see at the cross is the cost of your sin. That's what it took to pay for your sin, is that the sinless son of God would be dressed up like a clown. The sinless son of God would be drugged through streets and spit upon and treated like an abused animal, that he would be beaten, that he would be humiliated for your sin, that the wrath of God would be poured out upon him for your sin. That is where the humiliation at the cross comes in. What Jesus is doing is for your sin. He has no sin. And so that should bring you to your knees and seeing the cost for your sin. If you don't understand and you can't get what, what it means to sin infinitely before God, it took the infinite Son of God to die for you. And that should be humiliating for you. But we don't leave there. Remember how it ends. Those who would humble themselves before the Lord will be exalted. So I want you to come to the cross today and be exalted. Be exalted in Christ. See, the cross-driven humility doesn't end in self-loathing, but grace-loving. That's what the cross is to do for you. Even though we see the cost of our sin, we walk away from the cross and we say, oh, but the grace of God. I deserve to be crucified. I deserve to bear the wrath of God, but the grace of God. And so what the cross does for us is it exalts us in grace. You see, some of us have a problem. We think it is humility to walk around self-loathing and constantly meditating on our sin. Don't let your sin blind you from what's going on at the cross where your Savior is dying for your sin. He is dying for your sin. He is actually accomplishing something that you don't deserve. And it is your sin that has put Him there. But it is grace. It is grace that brings you to your knees there. And it is at the cross that God stops opposing you and turns His face towards you. Why? Because he turned his face from his son. So I want to invite you today in these moments. I don't have any catchy ending to the sermon today. But let's go to youth camp. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And I do want you to think about in these moments. How are you living in pride? 
How are you living in pride? And what, how is it affecting other people in your life? In these moments, let, let's, let's take that seriously today. We have heard the word of God. God could do amazing things in the life of this church if we would all deal with our pride in these moments. If we would all understand what it would mean to submit and be humble before the Lord. There are things that God would do in your life, in your home, in your family. If you would take this moment seriously before the cross of Christ. And you would understand your sin, your pride. That is the reason. That is the reason. That is the primary reason for your problems.